Blog Talk Radio. Noted. 
Okay. What's the breaking news there? Let's go back to that. You missed it. Go back. Oh, where is it? Right there. Oh, okay. Let me ask you, Mark, about one other part of the book. And this is about Steve Bannon's feud with Ivanka Trump. I'm quoting the book here. Bannon assured by everyone that there was no winning against the Trump family, hardly tried to hide his satisfied belief that he was going to outplay them. In the Oval Office, in front of her father, Bannon openly attacked her. You, he said, pointing at her as the president watched, are a effing liar. Ivanka's bitter complaints to her father, which in the past had diminished Bannon, were now met by a hands-off Trump. I told you this was a tough town, baby. Is there anyone who Donald Trump is truly loyal to? Um, well, I mean, I think the answer to that is Donald Trump is truly loyal to himself. Um, but, uh, you know, I, to go back to what Josh just said, there's a part of Donald Trump that relishes uh, this kind of uh, warring bands of advisors. Uh, and I think when Ivanka Trump came to Washington uh, and took an office in the West Wing, uh, perhaps her status in his eyes uh, changed uh, to some extent, and she did find herself in this melee, in this swirl of competing agendas and egos. Um, I think it also speaks to the fact that, um, you know, whatever else you're going to say about Steve Bannon, um, the guy was going for broke uh, and was willing to pretty much take on any imaginable risk to press his views. I mean, to go to war, we, we knew already he had kind of gone to war with Jared Kushner on various issues. That's been reported before. Um, I think this book sheds light on the fact that he actually also went to the mat with Ivanka Trump, uh, which would strike one as an even more dangerous thing to do. Um, so, you know, I, I think that really it just goes back to the fact that, you know, Trump uh, has Trump in mind above all things. And, uh, and I think the moment Ivanka came to Washington, as the president suggested to her, she was kind of taking her fate in her own hands. You know, one of the interesting things about this book, and again, I think in a way that you say, Josh, it affirms a lot of things we do, but puts it kind of, for me, in a, in a new context, new quotes, new interviews. Um, one of them is about women. And we know that Steve Bannon believes that he is the person who helped Donald Trump survive the infamous Billy Bush case. Right. So obviously he was elected president. He got by that. We're in a very different sort of set of beliefs right now. America has changed its tune on the treatment of women. And there is a quote in here about um, Hope Hicks and Lewandowski, who, according to the book, had an on-and-off-again romantic relationship. And, of course, he was fired in 2016 for clashing with Trump's family members. And this is what the book says. Hicks sat in Trump Tower with Trump and his sons, worrying about Lewandowski's treatment in the press and wondering aloud how she might help him. Trump, who otherwise seemed to treat Hicks in a protective and even paternal way, looked up and said, why? You've already done enough for him. You're the best piece of tail he'll ever had. have, sending Hicks running from the room. Uh, I think certainly um, one of the pieces of this book that will upset more than a few people uh, will affirm for a lot of people what they believe is how Trump really uh, believe, what Trump really believes about women and how he treats women. And yet the person who's about to come to the podium, Sarah Sanders, will talk often about how she's the first mom who has held that job. In the book, uh, there is a lot about how 
he certainly believes that he can trust women more than he can trust men. Many of the people closest to him who have been survivors, like Hope Hicks, are women. What do you make of that part of all this? Well, Trump Tower was known, and in the White House, as being a pretty crass place. The president frequently curses and, and uses off-color language. People will golf with him or about to say, you obviously heard the Access Hollywood tape and uh, his comments there. I have also spoken to, to West Wing gay, too, who are women who say he's never denigrated them, and in fact, it says praise him and, and welcome their opinions. So I think on one hand, you see that he can make vulgar and inappropriate comments about, you know, women or their appearance and, and you know, kind of be uh, not necessarily presidential in that, and then another way he could be a decent boss to women. If you look at some of his aides who were the, with him the longest of a Trump organization, some of them were women who, who real, really respect him to this day. Uh, so it's kind of a, a bifurcate to some degree. Uh, the president uh, obviously has been caught on tape doing one thing, and it's, we've heard stories of him doing similar things that you know likened to the Access Hollywood tape, and we, I've also heard stories from women who say they've never seen that from him. Uh, so I think it's kind of both at the same time. Uh, there is another uh, bit of this, and that is about the media uh, and the president and truth and his relationship with truth. And one of the uh, more interesting parts of this is about um, how he learned over every month on the most basic level, Trump just did not, as Sean Spicer later put it, give a expletive deleted. You could tell him whatever you wanted, but he knew what he knew, and if what you said contradicted what he knew, he simply didn't believe you. Is that what it is like dealing with this White House, basically, on a day-to-day -day basis? And I'll start with you, Josh. I'll go to Mark then, Mark. Uh, well, first of all, I draw a distinction between this White House uh, that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and the President himself. Um, I think if you deal with officials at the White House, whether it's the Chief of Staff or the National Security Advisor or Press Secretary Sanders, um, that's, not, that's not at all what it's like. Um, these people are, for the most part, trying to be professional, trying to be receptive and process new ideas while carrying out what they believe to be the agenda of the President. I think dealing with... So it'd be hard to know what his agenda is. Yeah, you know, yeah it, it really is. You know, and, uh, uh, I don't think he's really shared his real agenda with anybody. Nope, I don't think so. His it, agenda, comes, it comes out in tweets. His, is his, his agenda is his agenda, but it's really interesting that he and she and Lewandowski, it's interesting that they had that affair. Uh, well, that relationship. So. But no, me neither. You would have known kind of a homely guy. Well, you know, that's most. President Obama goes public on Mitch McConnell. Oh, by the way, uh, before before we, we, we continue, I, I've got a special treat for us tonight. Uh, I'll put it on it toward the end, I guess. But um, we opened up our new YouTube channel, okay, officially uh, the beginning of the month, uh, from last what, two days Well, you can put it on at the end. Uh, just two days ago. We opened it up, and it's called the L.A. Still Show, okay? L.A. Still Show forward slash YouTube.com, all right? And we got about 30, over 30 videos up there now. And uh, I'm going to play the latest one, a, little, a bit of the latest one, because it's so prophetic. And um, Lila and I did that program in October of 2000 with uh, Ralph Nader. Mm -hmm. uh, to film the Ralph Nader speech. 
for president and at the Winstead, uh, Connecticut, uh, his hometown. And it was really, it was really at Northwest Community College. Yeah, it was really uh, prophetic. When in you, Winstead, Connecticut. Yeah, I was putting it up tonight, and I, I hadn't seen it for some time, and I digitalized it and put it up to, there, uh, and it was like, wow, everything he said then is happening exactly the way he said it would today if they didn't interject a third party, right? They needed a third party because to that now now that's totally is totally morphed into the same party, and uh, politics have gotten and he predicted it would be a corporate owned. Uh, world, it would be a fascist world, you know, mm-hmm. a fascist country, and uh, the, it would be totally taken over by the corporate, mm-hmm. uh, by corporations, and that's what it is, under Trump, and uh, really, really interesting, but um, anyway, I wanna, I'd like to get to that before, before I want to get to that before the end of the show tonight, but um, there's so many interesting things happening. President Obama goes public on Mitch McConnell for obstructionist fraud that he is. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is he a little late with that? Uh, this, this came out on December 30th, um, about three days ago. And, uh, but he's gone. McConnell has made obstructing the Obama administration his personal life's uh, uh, mission. Now President Obama has spoken out on his feelings about the way McConnell and his Republican buddies in Congress have treated him his last eight years. And um, here's what President Obama had to say in a New York Magazine interview. By that point, it was pretty much uh, apparent by his actions that it was already McConnell's number one goal. He validated that I think most of the town knew when I came into office, my working assumption was that because we were in crisis, and the crisis had begun on the Republican watch, that there would be a window in which they would feel obliged to cooperate for a com- common effort to dig us out of that massive hole. This is what Obama said. <laughs> this is what he thought. Yeah. And he says, on the drive up to Capitol Hill, we meet with... To meet with the House Republican yeah. Caucus, John Boehner released a press statement saying that they were opposed to the stimulus. At that point, we didn't even actually have a stimulus bill drawn up, and we hadn't meant to talk about it. And I think we realized at that point what proved to be the case that first year and that second year was a calculation based on what turned out to be pretty smart politics, but really bad for the country. If they cooperated with me, then then they would validate our efforts. If they were able to maintain uniform opposition to whatever I propose, that would send a signal to the public of gridlock, dysfunction, and that would help them win seats in the midterm. It was a second strategy that they pursued with great discipline. It established the dynamics for not just my presidency, but for much sharper party-line approach to managing both the House and the Senate that I think is going to have consequences for years to come. As a consequence, there were times that I would meet with Mitch McConnell and he looked to me and would say to me very bluntly, look, I'm doing you a favor if I do any deal with you, so it should be entirely on my terms because it hurts me just being seen photographed with you. Obama went on to say that during the health care debate, you know, there was a point in time where after having had multiple negotiations with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, who was the ranking member 
along my current alongside my current Chinese ambassador Max Bacchus in exasperation, I finally just said to Grassley, is there any form of health care reform that you can support? And he shrugged and looked a little sheepish and said, probably not. Mitch McConnell is a cancer to Washington who needs to be removed. He's a destructionist in every sense of the word. Doing what's best for America is not even on McConnell's radar. He only cares about Republican winning, no matter the cost. Simple as that. I'm glad Obama has called him out on it finally. Good. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that that's that's the business there. Now let's go back. I think it's interesting though that I thought that was interesting. Don't you? Mm. That's what I'm that's glad what, he did say something yeah. about him. <laughs> I don't know. I, you I think thought this, this is true. I don't yeah, I think it's true. I just think it's funny. I thought I'd, I would read it. Well, they can't invite Trump. Trump's a racist. Yeah, well, royal wedding. All right, Obama invited, Trump not invited. Why not? I was expected to lobby for Trump invite. <laughs> I thought it was so funny that you, 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 you would have to lobby to get an invite to Harry's wedding. Well, why would they want a racist there? He's marrying a black woman. Yeah, I know. I'm sure she was the one that said no. You know, but it says Barack and Michelle Obama, is from London, uh, have been invited as special guests to the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. While Trump and Melania have not been invited, and a royal expert and journalist who covers the royal family news has said the Queen and most of the royal family likely want Trump to stay the hell away. <laughs> the royal wedding has come at a difficult time for Anglo-American relations a time when Trump and British Prime Minister Theresa May nearly fell out on Twitter after firing off harsh and critical tweets after each, at each other. <laughs> and Britain also refused to support Trump on his idea of moving the Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And it has been rumored that Trump refused to send a Christmas card to Theresa May. <laughs> the the royal wedding has only uh, complicated the already diplomatically fragile situation between the U.K. and the United States. Harry is a close friend to Barack Obama and has nothing in common with Trump. In fact, Trump has been recorded on the Howard Stern Show saying sexually disgusting things about Prince Harry's late mother, oh my God, and Prince Diana, and it is suspected that most of the royal family dislikes Trump's weird behavior and the nasty things he says. Uh, according to a British government insider, Harry's eagerness to invite the Obamas to his wedding could further harm international relations <laughs> with the U.S. following Theresa May's decision to publicly blast Trump on social media. Oh, I love it. No, I love it. The government source said Harry has made it clear he wants the Obamas at the wedding, so it's causing a lot of nervousness. And Trump could react very badly if the Obamas get to a royal wedding before he has had a chance to meet the Queen, and this is what is going to happen. On the other hand, Prince Harry is not a politician. There's no obligation to invite Trump to his wedding, and Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have, can invite or not invite whoever they want. It's their wedding, after all. And speculation continues that the White House could try to lobby. I can't believe you'd go to that point. You know what I mean? No, fuck no, I don't know. So what? 
You know what I mean? Why would it, why would you beg for an invite to Harry's? You know? I wouldn't even want to go. No. And I, and it's right, he did he did insult uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, his mother. Oh, Princess Diana. Yeah. He said he wanted to, she was a great looking piece of ass or something on uh. on Howard Stern show, you know. Imagine that? Yeah. Oh. You know, I wanted I this came up today. Uh, this came up today on Facebook, you know. Mm-hmm. It reminded me what I posted six years ago. Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, I, 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 I remember when it was going on. I remember what was happening. But I remember when the Fed bailed out everybody, you know, uh-huh. back, back in 2009. Yes, I was especially mad they bailed out the Bank of Scotland. Oh, yeah. But it, it, this this is this was put into YouTube in 2009. Nothing has happened since except the Fed has experienced was exposed by Bloomberg's lawsuit for lending over seven trillion dollars, uh, not one trillion, which they claim they did. Huh. I'll read this to you <coughs> because it's really, it's really. Uh, and who's paying for it? Uh, it, it? We are. We are. That's our debt. Yeah, this is it's about surprising six to me minutes. that it's gotten uh, essentially no mainstream media coverage at all because we're talking about so much money. The Federal Reserve is really a black hole in American democracy. All we have to say is, what do they have to hide? The Federal Reserve had a responsibility to provide oversight all these for guys, the conduct of banks. All these guys are out of politics now. They didn't do that. The guys that are out of It's known as uh-huh. one of the most powerful and secretive institutions in Washington. And now, President Obama wants to hand the Federal Reserve even more power. I am proposing that the Federal Reserve be granted new authority and accountability for regulating bank holding companies and other large firms that pose a risk to the entire economy in the event of failure. The President's plan to make the Fed the systemic risk regulator has raised eyebrows on Capitol Hill. The President's financial reform proposal has included broad and sweeping increases in Chairman Bernanke or his successor's powers, and if that power is used, what will be the oversight? I believe that we have to adequately audit the Federal Reserve before any consideration is given to making the Federal Reserve regulated. A growing number in Congress are calling for the Federal Reserve to be fully audited for the first time in its history. It's a movement that started with one Washington outsider whose ideas have largely been ignored by the mainstream of both political parties. Texas Congressman Ron Paul. He's been trying to audit the Federal Reserve for years without success. But in the last few months, his bill to open up the Fed's books has spawned a rare bipartisan coalition of more than 250 co-sponsors, a majority of the House of Representatives. Now remember, this the best answer I have about defending my bill is asking a question. Why not? My concern about the legislation is that if the GAO is auditing not only the operational aspects of our programs and the details of the programs, but is making judgments about our policy decisions that would effectively be a takeover of monetary policy by the Congress, a a repudiation of the independence of the Federal Reserve, which would be highly destructive to the stability of the financial system, the dollar, and uh, our national economic situation. Despite these dire warnings against having an audit, Fed challengers in Congress aren't flinching. Uh, This is a situation where The Federal Reserve is out of control. Since September, it's been doing things it never did before in its history. With the help of a rule from the days of Woodrow Wilson, 
that gave the Federal Reserve vast authority to lend money during unusual and exigent circumstances, the Fed has doled out more than a trillion dollars to financial institutions without consulting Congress. When freshman Congressman Alan Grayson asked the Fed's Inspector General how much of that money the Federal Reserve had lost since the crisis began, he was surprised to find out she didn't know. So are you telling me that nobody at the Federal Reserve is keeping track on a regular basis of the losses that it incurs on what is now a $2 trillion portfolio? Until we actually look at the program and have the information, we are not in a position to say whether there are losses or to respond in any other way. And I think it was shocking oh, to me and to other people to see that the Inspector General could not account for a trillion dollars of cash that had been handed out by the Federal Reserve. Uh, in the course of just the past few months. So Grayson began rallying his fellow Democrats to support Ron Paul's bill and call for more oversight of the Federal Reserve. The fact is, is that the American people want to know more of the secrets of the temple, as the book was uh, before you were born, the secrets of the temple, <laughs> which required reading in my day. Nancy Pelosi said the public wants to know more about the secrets of the temple. And, and I, my response to that is, if the public does learn more, they will be outraged more. Journalist and author William Grider says the Fed's darkest secrets are conflicts of interest stemming from its deep ties to the financial elite. The Federal Reserve, from its origins, is very, very close to the biggest banks and financial houses in the country. Always has been and always has governed with that in mind. The Fed has refused to release the names of all the banks it's given money to, but some of the names that have leaked out have caused concern. And as stories emerge of how the banks got their money, some are questioning the Fed's close relationship with Wall Street. One example that I think is particularly dubious, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, is involved in the bailout of Bear Stearns. If, if that firm failed, one of the people who loses first is J.P. Morgan Chase. So he is also saved by the bailout of Bear Stearns. So he graciously agrees to take over Bear Stearns if the Federal Reserve will put up $30 billion to cover his losses. What I find troubling is that Jamie Dimon sits on the board of directors of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Tim Geithner, who was then president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank and is now Treasury Secretary, was bargaining with his own board member on this terms of this deal. So I think what's happened in, the, in this crisis is that people all over the country have been able to see there's something illegitimate about this. They may not be able to put their finger on it, but this, this doesn't feel right. And some people are getting downright angry, and that includes a lot of members of Congress. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth? And now one House committee is holding its own investigation into the controversial deal that the Fed brokered between Bank of America and the failing financial giant Merrill Lynch. According to documents acquired during the investigation, Fed Chairman Bernanke threatened to fire Bank of America CEO Ken Lewis when Lewis considered backing out of the deal. The Fed's decision-making process in the Bank of America Merrill Lynch merger makes the case for a significant increase in accountability at the Fed. The next hurdle for the plan to audit the Fed is the House Financial Services Committee, chaired by Barney Frank. 
Although Frank has praised the Fed's work to keep credit flowing during the economic crisis, he's pledged to include a Fed audit in the major financial regulation bill he plans to finish this summer. There will be substantially increased auditing. We don't want anything that would uh, endanger the integrity of monetary policy, but uh, in general, the operations of the Fed, the money they take in, all that will be uh, very much subject to audit. Despite the momentum, the Fed's not quitting the fight. It just created a new position for Enron's former head lobbyist, Linda Robertson, to push back against congressional critics. I think it's unfortunate that they're struggling so hard to keep this secret. We need to know exactly who got the money, what the terms are, all the details of this, because this is a democracy. can't hand out a trillion dollars of the people's money and keep everyone in the dark about it. That's ridiculous. Nobody has that kind of power in a democracy in, in a constitutional country. All right, so well, what happened with that? Well, nothing. It, it, it bailed out, and that was it. That's why. That's why it was. Uh, and it went. Yeah, and it fizzled out. <laughs> I mean, we lent over seven trillion dollars, okay, to the uh, to to companies, mm-hmm. and 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 to uh, bailing out Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Okay, that we did. Yeah. All right, we did. So you wonder why you're paying high taxes and why we're in debt? That's why. It's that's not why. the Chinese. No, and it's not. The know, Federal Reserve, folks. That's uh, exactly it. And they're charging interest to you on the money they're lending out to uh, to, to other countries who are defaulting, okay? Mm-hmm. And we had to, you know, Jesus. Ah, anyway, maybe this explains the world. Trump is addicted to Twitter and McDonald's. And anyone reading this is probably addicted to Facebook, their smartphone, and Netflix binge-watching. I said that. All right? Sessions can forget the opioid epidemic. <laughs> Facebook was designed to be addictive. Does that make it evil? This is from Slate.com. I thought that was interesting. It turns out that it was designed to be addictive. Are Facebook and other social media companies intentionally uh, exploiting people psychologically, uh, psychological vulnerabilities to keep them addicted. Uh, you bet, says Sean Parker, who made a fortune as an early Facebook investor and its first president. In an interview with Axios' Mike Allen this week, Parker said that he has become something of a conscientious objector to social media and reflected that some regret... With some regret. Yeah, on his, his own, own role in helping to mold the sort of company that Facebook uh, would become. The thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. See? Mm-hmm. He said, and that, means, uh, and that means what we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or dis- or commented on a photo or a post, or whatever, and that's going to give you... uh going to get you to contribute, contribute more, more content. content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, right? And You're exploding a vulnerability in human psychology. Do you want to read the rest of that? Parker went on. Take I, over. I, I think the inventor created... It's me. It's uh, Mark Zuckerberg. It's Kevin Sustrom at Instagram, it's all of these people, and they understood this, and we did it anyway. 
predictably, the coverage has generated some backlash. A post about it on the Tech Bulletin Board Hacker News drew the following top comment from the user O13A. Can you read that? This, guy, this organization is disgusting and is evidence enough that our industry has no sense of ethical responsibility. Uh, when massive regulation lands on Silicon Valley and we whine about the impact it has on innovation, remember companies like Dopamine Labs who truly deserve it. And that was from Francois Cholet, a Google engineer. No, no, no. Who's, oh, oh, I thought that, he was. That from, was from user 013A. Oh, yeah. Well, Francis Cholet. Francois Cholet. Google engineer who's well-known in the uh, uh, artificial intelligence community, reprimanded the company on Twitter. He said, Dopamine, an, AL plat an AI platform, rather, to engineer addictiveness, uh, sad saddest thing I've read about today. If you work at AI, in AI, artificial intelligence, you have de facto some powers over others. So remember, to always exercise this power responsibly. Yeah. I think he's right. Yeah. It's true that dopamine is unusually blunt uh, about what it's doing, but are its means or ends reasonably, really much different than those of Facebook, Snapchat, Zynga, or any number of other companies that make their money by getting people hooked on their apps. Uh, T. Dalton Combs, one of the company's co-founders, doesn't think so. I think a lot of people in the technology industry are very sensitive to talking uh, plainly about these issues because everyone, I think, has a lot of anxiety and guilt about them. We told me in a phone interview, and you, and so when someone stands up like Sean Parker did or like Dopamine does and talks plainly about these techniques and their benefits and their costs, everyone kind of freaks out. I mean, we know these kinds of technologies are why Google free and Facebook free and why uh, everyone in tech is able to make the salaries that we do, All right? And, uh, but, they're scared. They're, but they scare us. And then this, this thing goes on quite a ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, the thing to note is... It's addictive. It's addictive, folks. It is addictive. We should be careful about conflating addictive apps or games with more destructive forms of addiction. But we are, we are addicted to all these things, folks. We're addicted to news. Yeah. This is funny. I posted that six or five years ago. You can't fix stupid. Let's <laughs> 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 right. do, do some of some fun thing. 18 states will raise their minimum wage all right, on January 1st. And here's what to expect. 18 states. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah, it's coming. Whatever it is, it's coming. Here you go. Well, the White House and members of the GOP package the sweeping tax for overall as a win. This sequence flight series is built for performance with superior mobility and twice the While the White House and members of GOP packaged the sweeping tax code 
Overall, as it wouldn't for the average American, low-wage workers may be hit the hardest. The setback comes as the U.S. minimum wage has remained stagnant over the last decade. And last time, the federal minimum wage increase was in uh, July 2009, from 6.55 to 6.725 an hour. However, now 18 states are making are taking matters into their own hands, raising the minimum wage effective January 1st. 2018. Ten states are working so as the result of legislation over the next few years. Eight states will have a smaller inflation-adjusted increases. Um, 4.5 million workers, left-leaning think tank, uh, Economic Policy Institute, estimates that the increase will benefit 4.5 million workers. Does it say which states have... Uh, yeah, it does somewhere, but it doesn't for... Let's go down and get right that. This is kind of... But it does say that. The arguments against raising the minimum wage, blah, blah, blah. Which states will see the boost? Mainers will see the largest increase of the full dollar increase. These pop-up ads kill you. Um, Keep going down. Yeah, four and a half million people are going to benefit, but let's see. Manus will see the largest increase with the full oh, superior mobility. Twice the this should be criminalized. This stuff should be criminalized. On Turn down your volume. Yeah, but then I can't. Then no. Manus yeah. will see the largest increase with a full dollar increase. Up to ten dollars per hour on January first, twenty eighteen, will be followed by another annual increase of a dollar in twenty nineteen until the wage reaches twelve dollars in twenty twenty. Oh, big whoop! They get twenty one dollars an hour in Australia. Yeah. This and, is ridiculous. And, and I think they get almost that in, in, in Great Britain too. Mhm. Mm um, with uh, with uh, universal care. Yeah. The law also re revives the tip uh, credit. Which allows employers to count yeah, employee tips toward their wages. Well, you know, tipped employees can be paid more than fifty. Can't be paid more. Can't be paid more than fifty percent of the state's hourly minimum wage in 2018. Well, what's wrong with these things? I mean, why, why, why are they so cruel? Well, conventional wisdom may suggest that workers should be happy with higher wages. Restaurant servers actually fought to overturn the results of a 216 referendum that would raise waiters' salaries to $12 by 2024, up from 375 and 216. Protesters claim that they take home much less if customers believe they're making more money and therefore tip less. Um, Colorado, uh, Hawaii, Newark, Newport, Rhode Island, Arizona, California, Washington, and Michigan round out the other states that will enact a higher minimum wage as of January 1st. Uh, the median increase is uh, point is about 50 cents per hour per worker. And uh, hang on a second. Uh, meanwhile, New Jersey, Ohio, and Florida, and Alaska, Montana, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Missouri will see a slight bump, a median of 15 cents. No, fifteen dollars. Fifteen cents. Oh. Point one five. Oh gee, what a treat. Yeah, the others are going up fifty cents. Well, a big whoop, and the others are fifteen cents an hour. I mean, and uh, keep pace with price growth. 
the and state of California and the city of New York and 19, Seattle. The 19 states bumped up their minimum wage in 2017. Many of them are incremental increases with timelines of two or three to six years to reach the ultimate goal. The states of California and New York and Seattle are all on track to reach a $15 minimum wage by 2022. Micromeasure. So, anyway, we're, we're, we're on the track here. But several companies are, are proactively setting the $15 minimum for their employees, citing the lower corporate tax rate as incentive to hire more and pay workers at more competitive rates. <clears throat> Both Wells Fargo and Fifth Shirt Bank are raising their company's minimum wage to $15 an hour this year. Uh, other companies are introducing bonuses to appease workers. AT&T, they're laying off a 1,000 workers uh, in, 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 in Connecticut. Connecticut, I guess. Is giving 200,000 employees a $1,000 bonus. Right? CEO Randall Stephenson credited Congress and President Trump for enabling him to create good-paying jobs. Yeah. The Telegram giants announced hundreds of layoffs shortly after announcing bonuses. They announced hundreds of layoffs after announcing they gave $1,000. Comcast also announced they would give out a special $1,000 holiday bonus to more than 100,000 non-executive employees. Boeing said it will, give, it will invest $300 million on workers split among workers' training, upgrading facilities, and a program that matches employees' charitable contributions. And then, while companies' effort to boost wages can improve the lives of workers, advocates are looking for more permanent solutions with support on local, both local and federal levels. So there. So, rah, yahoo! Some people are getting 50 cents an hour more. Some are getting 15 cents an hour. Oh, wow. Oh, I know, isn't that a sick freaking thing? This is, this is so incredible. But, you know, at the same time, we, uh, let's see, we got about, about 15 minutes left. I, I, I wanted to spend, I promised that I would play this, um, uh, this speech tonight because, speech that I, I put up on YouTube where we, we just uh, created a YouTube channel and uh, it's uh, it's pretty it's really pretty great and uh, what I wanted to do is play off tonight the last few minutes of tonight's show with a great great speech by uh, Ralph Nader that we were able to uh, um, you to, to hear the first 15 minutes or so of the speech because um, Lila, Lila hosted, she, she introduced the show, but it was basically a 50-minute speech by Ralph Nader in his hometown in Winstead, uh, right during his... Uh, uh, before his uh, run? Yeah, October 5th, 2000, all right, before, before the, what, during his presidential run, mm -hmm. okay, yes, uh, and we were able to film this, and it was kind of fun because... But it was a good thing to see how, what a what a prophet he was. I mean, mm -hmm. this, he he laid it right out in line as to what would happen if if they didn't get a third party mm -hmm. or or elect a third party presidential, you know, 
the highest number of children without health insurance. Every day, well, it's amazing how many times he gets that picture. You've probably seen it next to two little kids, you know, bending down like that, just to get the image in. That's a lot of what politics has been about. And what we do is we, we look for citizen groups who are really fighting pollution, fighting against poverty, fighting to get more responsive government, fighting to build citizen groups, pressing for renewable solar energy, going after the uh, HMO uh, companies who have been denying care right and left in places like California and around the country. Uh, I was in West Virginia once, and uh, the coal companies were blowing off the tops of the mountains to get a coal, and the rubble would go down into the streams, blocking the streams and shaking the dickens out of these little villages in the hollows. And they appealed to Washington, and Clinton were decided that they weren't going to uh, move to stop the coal companies from doing this, even in the year 2000 uh, AD. Living wages and uh, uh, all the things that are going on around the country is, uh, constitute what a political campaign should connect with. That's the way you get an authentic uh, political movement. And we're trying to, as uh, you know, get, get on the debates, and that's pretty difficult these days. Uh, I was up there, and I got off the bus, and I had a ticket to go to the auditorium next to the debate auditorium. And uh, I was confronted by the representative of the debate commission uh, two, three nights ago, and he was surrounded by three state troopers. And he said, even if you have a ticket, Mr. Nader, you are not invited. I said, come again. I have a ticket. Even if you have a ticket, you are not invited. And you have to leave. So we went back, and then we came back again. The same thing happened. This is the kind of tyranny that that debate commission is imposing on significant third-party candidates where you can't even sit in an auditorium and watch it because you have to go to a trailer right after run by Fox Television News that invited you to come on the debates. So today we're releasing a letter to the debate commission and to Gore Bush, basically saying if I don't get a written apology for this outrage, if they don't contribute $25,000 to the Harvard Law School project on election reform, we're going to see them in court. And that's what's happened. 
So, well, uh, and it's and to the extent that we have Trump, you know, the biggest corporatist going, okay, uh, as as our president. So, yeah. how can folks see the remainder of? Uh, uh, that's what I was going to say. Peter. Please go to our YouTube, our new YouTube channel, okay? Uh, it's called L A Steel Show, L A Steel Show, all right? Forward slash YouTube dot com, okay? Mm-hmm. And it'll pop and right up. It'll pop right up on our channel. And I ask you to please, if you enjoy it, there's, there's over 30 uh, uh, videos up there of uh, programs that we've done. Uh, many of them are hosted by Lila, all right, and, uh, and myself. And and we will be uh, presenting many, many, many more uh, 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 in the next few few weeks and months. And uh, so please subscribe and get all the updates. And, all right, folks. And tell your friends and family members and everyone, go to L.A. Steel Show forward slash YouTube.com and, and enjoy all of our video programs. In the meantime, stay warm and toasty. It's pretty cold all throughout the country. Yeah. And the East Coast is going to be experiencing a storm. So hunker down, down stay safe, stay warm, and God bless. Good night, folks. Good night, everyone. Oh, and...